everyone. Welcome to Manufacturing Hub. Very happy to be back after a short, brief hiatus from last week. I hope you guys didn't miss us too much. This month, for the next four weeks of July and the first week of August, we're digging in into standardizations in automation, which is an exciting topic. I don't even know how we're going to come close to covering it all, but very excited to go do that. We do want to thank our sponsor, Siemens, for going ahead and continuing to support the show. If you guys are new here, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back. If you are new here, we do our very best to have open conversations. We have generally a very active chat. So if you guys are in the chat, please feel free to go ahead and say hi. Tell us where you're from. Please feel free to go ahead and ask questions. We do our very best to go ahead and get all of the questions answered as we get through this. And if we don't get all of your questions answered, we do our very best to go back after, after the chat after the show to, to go ahead and answer those questions. So without further ado, everyone, officially welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I am Dave. This guy up here is Vlad. All month long, we're talking about standardization in automation, powered by Siemens. And today we'd like to welcome Garrett Williams to the show. Garrett, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Vlad. Very excited to be here today talking with you guys and the audience. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time, Garrett. Before we dive into the conversation about standardization, could you give us a little bit of a background about yourself? How did you get started in manufacturing automation? What was your career path like and ultimately where you are today? Sure. I've been in the industry for about 24 years. So going way back, I started with, yeah, I've always had a passion for technology and automation. So I majored in electrical engineering in school, got a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. And it was that time in college I also realized that my, my passion wasn't just technology, automation, but also people and working with people, solving problems for people. I, I did pure counseling and things like that in college. So that really put me on a sales and business development track, and, and which led to a job with Siemens. I started with Siemens right out of school, went into what they called at the time was the Siemens Sales Engineer Training Program. We have similar programs today. They have different names. They're very similar. I strongly encourage anyone to go through a program like that, whether it be through Siemens or anyone else, to really take advantage of it. Because what that program did for me is it gave me a strong foundation in a variety of industries, a variety of functions, sales, engineering, marketing, et cetera. And it was just a fantastic experience. So they, after that experience, which was, like I said, it was about a two-year program. For me, it was a little bit truncated because I needed someone to go into sales in the St. Louis area, which is where I'm from, right away. And, and so I went into sales, spent about 50, close to 15 years in sales with Siemens, all different types of capacities from an individual contributor up through management. Again, very fortunate to, to have a lot of different types of customers, a lot of different industries, a you know, very dynamic job. Beyond that, my passion was always automation. So the opportunity came up to go to the business unit, specifically the factory automation business unit for Siemens. So when I say factory automation for us, that's PLC, IO, HMI, SCADA, and PC-based automation. So that's essentially what we mean when we say factory automation. So I went into a business development management role with factory automation and did that. I had the Western U.S. for quite a few years, had even the entire U.S. for a period of time. Really got a lot of new perspectives because when you look at the U.S. and you look at automation, you look at our industry, there's a lot of variance region to region, both geographically, geographically, as well as, as vertically based on the industry. So I learned a lot there, which led me to the point where an opportunity came up for me to go work for a systems integrator. So again, I've been with Siemens my entire career. So it was a big deal 
for me to even consider leaving Siemens. But the opportunity would want to be a director of business development and a, and a national systems integrator. And what that meant for me at the time was really an opportunity to, I always looked at things through a Siemens lens, always look at things through a product lens. But what did things, I feel like if I'm really going to be fair to myself and either to, even to my customers, what do things look like outside of Siemens? So I learned a whole lot more about who I always perceived as competitors in the past, but they were my partners as a systems integrator. Um, and also more about services. If, when you're selling a product as one part, one component of the solution, services is the other side. Really learning how to work successfully with our system integration partners or our, our manufacturing partners as we integrated projects for customers. So I did that for about three years. Again, got a lot out of the experience. But there's no question, I've got Siemens in my blood. So had an opportunity to come back to Siemens. And so here I am. Today, my current role, I've been back for about seven months. My current role is a portfolio development specialist for industrial IO. So that's a lot of words, right? But basically what that means is it's a, it's a bit of a unique role for us in factory automation, even for Siemens, in that part of my role is to be out supporting our sales team and our partners, integrators and distributors alike. In, in supporting our industrial IO sales. Also, a big part of my role, big focus is finding new paths to grow our business. And how do we grow our business? In the past, Siemens has always been very, been a bundled approach to how we promote IO as part of a Siemens solution. But as we, especially as we look at standardization, it opens up the doors to selling IO, even when there's not a PLC, a Siemens PLC. And we can talk about that more. So that's part of my role. And another big part of my role is Siemens is a global leader. Everyone's aware of that, right? But with all of the things that are happening in the U.S. right now, and have started happening for the last several years, there is a renewed focus on the U.S. market and really growing business here. And there's a lot of new things happening in the U.S. where the U.S. is at the forefront. And Siemens is going to be right there as a leader. And so it's important that what we're seeing in specifically our U.S. market gets back to our development teams in Europe and elsewhere to really promote and optimize our products so it meets our needs here in the U.S. market. So... Garrett, in a nutshell, that's me. Garrett, I've got a ton of questions for you, but I do want to pause and go into those early years, right? Because I think a critical step for any graduating engineer is finding maybe the right career path and the right, I want to say like vertical. And I think that Siemens, after talking extensively with Lewis and John, offers an interesting, I want to say that two-year program. And so you made the choice of going more on like the sales and business development side. So I'm curious... If you were to paint like a picture, how did that decision come to be? Because ultimately Siemens is a very technically, I want to say, led company. So they want people from engineering going into those roles. But I think many engineers don't know, let's say, about those career paths. So I'm curious about that early perspective that you had. Yeah, well, that's a really good question. And I would say, I can't say this enough to people, is get in the habit of self-reflection. So many times, at least I've been guilty of this, and I tell my kids this too, is that sometimes you get on a track and you think, like for me, I was always a technology guy, automation guy. So I always felt like, hey, I was going to be an engineer sitting at a desk doing design work. And I started college that way too. And, but I took, I took a step back I zoomed out a bit and took a chance to self-reflect and figured out, I really love the technology. I don't want to abandon that. But I really like people. Am I going to get the opportunity to interact with people the way I'd like to? I'm just doing development work. And at the time, I didn't have a full understanding. I was a kid. I didn't have a full understanding of everything all these roles meant. But I had my own ideas, and I talked to some people. I self-reflected and decided I'd really like to do something that deals with people. So I talked to my career center. I talked to the companies like Siemens that were coming in recruiting us. 
And uh, that's how I got interested in sales and in business development group from there. Interesting. Yeah. And again, I'm always like interested to hear those stories because like I said, many engineers simply don't know what is possible, what is available after the degree. So you don't necessarily have to be that person sitting on a desk designing. So definitely appreciate that perspective. The other question I wanted to ask you is maybe that perspective from like a systems integrator and like a large OEM. I think that move was also probably a big shift in your career. I'm curious to hear like your thoughts in general, when it comes to like automation, was there any like big takeaways and how things are handled and what was, what was that like? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely learned quite a few things. I would say one of the biggest things I learned now, coming from a manufacturer like Siemens, the one of the things we try to do is we're industry leaders. So you try to get in the forefront, sometimes forecast what you think is going to happen in the future, try to get ahead of it. So you meet the market, you escape beyond the puck. So you can receive it when it comes. Right. But when I went to the systems integrator, the mindset's a little bit different. They were also future-oriented, but they were also based in reality and dealing with customers and saying, no, this is what we have right now. We need to make these systems work. We got to make them work together. How do we do that? So I really feel like I got a better feel for what's truly important in the industry, what's truly important to customers. And you know what? We were riding a lot of ways at Siemens, but there were other things that maybe we were ahead of the game on. Maybe we were off a little bit. And so I really got to learn what, what mattered most to, to customers. And I wish I could tell you that there was one silver bullet thing that was consistent across all of my customers, all my clients when I was at the systems integrator. There really wasn't. The thing is, there's not a one size fits all. Everyone's different. And whether you're selling products or services, you really got to base it on needs. And so it's a needs-based mentality. And so in your current role, Garrett, we spoke a little bit about this off stream. You get to interact with customers a lot. You get to understand like, their problems. Could you paint us a better picture of what that dynamic looks like? Yeah. So many times, so one of, one of my functions is to support our sales team. So if we have an industrial IO opportunity and they need some help for support or closing the sale, they'll bring me in for that. There's other times, many times we're trying to be partners with our customers, right? We're not... The idea isn't to go in and say, here's my IO, here's my IO, let me tell you all about it. That's not the idea. The idea is to listen, keyword, listen to them, understand what's driving them, where they're trying to go, what their problems are, and, and how we can solve it. So I do that along with our sales team. I do that directly with customers. And I do that with my team. A lot of times I'll go have a meeting. For example, a few weeks ago, I was in Detroit meeting with automotive OEMs. And I've got a lot of good insights from them. So one of the first things I do after those calls, I go back, I call our product marketing manager and say, hey, I just had these conversations. And these guys are really focused on these areas. This is what seems what's really driving them. We really need to put some emphasis on this. So we have that discussion. And it goes a step beyond. Then, we're, then we also have a conversation with our development team. Many times it's in Germany. And we'll talk about, hey, this is what we need in the U.S. This is what we're seeing with our customers. And then they look at that and consider it and integrate it into development processes for products. That is really interesting. I guess I'll let Dave jump in, but I'd be curious to see the different areas and how it compares across verticals. That must be really interesting to see that data firsthand. But Dave, what are your thoughts? Absolutely. No, Garrett, I would love to get your perspective on how things have changed. So you've worked for Siemens for most of the last 20 years. I'm sure that there have been some fairly significant changes from how business was done 20 years ago with, I imagine, mostly Europe driving to the conversation that you were having about how it's more of a collaboration. But can you tell us about how things have changed either on the development side or, or on the go-to-market strategy? What is different and how has it changed for the better? 
Yeah. A really good question. Um, 20 years ago, automation was very much, I would say, islands of automation. We would go in, you would tackle a project, you would tackle a problem, and it was an island. You didn't necessarily have connectivity among all of those islands. We had things back then that were more, more forward loop, but it wasn't all PLC. We had PCs and PC-based automation and, and things like that. But you didn't have the discussion like we do today with cybersecurity. It wasn't nearly as big of a deal back then. It certainly is now and things that have become even more prominent as we move forward. Also, the OT and the convergence of those. No one, if you said ITOD convergence 20 years ago, you get some really puzzled looks because basically back then, the interaction with IT was, hey, I need to procure a PC. How do I do that? And that was about the extent of it, from my experience. Now it's very different and uh, and accelerating how quickly it's changing. So I would say those are the biggest things. The world's gotten much bigger. The automation world is much bigger. Before you had that island, you could focus on that. Maybe you focus on a single line or a single plant. You get it to a certain point to, to meet the needs for automation. Today, it's much bigger than that. That, that, that machine goes to a line. That line goes to a plant. That plant goes to an enterprise. And that enterprise goes to an industry. You're even seeing information and data being shared among companies in a singular industry. You didn't have that to the same level or extent back then as we do now. Absolutely. Does that make sense? No, I think that does. I think that that is fantastic. I love that. And I want to continue down the theme of that, right? As, as we talk about standardization in automation, in my mind, it's very much continuing to break down those islands of automation, right? It's very much how, the, like, hopefully for the Siemens folks, we've got all of the turquoise all across the facility. But if, hey, I can't get a particular IO or I can't get a particular VFD or something like that, no one wants a facility to go down because we can't go ahead and plug and place different pieces of hardware. So can you tell us a, a bit more about how Siemens sees standardization in automation, the, the continuing of breaking down those islands? Yeah, no, that's a really good point, Dave. And yeah, so just to give you some context, let me take a step back. First of all, we've been driving towards standardization for quite a few years, but that pace of change in manufacturing that we're seeing in our overall industry is the fastest it's big in years. I think you guys would agree with that, yeah. right? Especially since COVID. Think about the additional challenges that, we, that, that emerged during COVID that we're dealing with today. Supply chain challenges, workforce challenges, et cetera. And then you look at some of the mega trends that are converging and all peaking or coming into the forefront all at the same time. Mega trends like individualization, where basically we're seeing higher mix, lower volume in terms of products that are being produced. Digitalization, we all hear the buzzwords, IoT, IIoT, big data, but digitalization is a real thing because we're trying to make smarter decisions and more automated decisions. So that data, that digitalization of that data is a big deal, especially when we talk about breaking down those items of automation. We also have disruptive technologies like artificial intelligence, certainly in the mainstream right now. What does that mean for automation? And then things like climate change. Climate change is something that we hear a lot in the industry right now because how do you have production efficiency, but at the same time be sustainable. How do you meet that challenge? So we've had all these trends kind of converging. And the good news is for guys like us, a podcast right now, that means more automation, right? In fact, automation is key to addressing and solving many of these challenges, which is fantastic. However, it also means that these automation solutions are much, much more complex. And that complexity can be negative, right? Complexity can have a negative impact on our business in a number of ways, both from an engineering perspective, from an operations perspective, and ultimately from a bottom line. And that's really where standardization comes into play. 
How do you tackle that complexity? How do you solve it? It's really with standardization. So what we've been building towards it now, especially since COVID, people are looking at that rear view mirror and looking at all of the threats and risks that emerged out of that. How do they attack it? How do they approach it going forward? And standardization is what you're seeing really ramp up as a solution for that. I like the comment, I guess, of complexity, right? Because I've had many conversations with customers that mention, I want to say the same keyword. And I think that my in my world, complexity also brings customization. And that also leads to, I guess, or we're pushing towards like more open platforms. I can now, if I'm a control systems engineer or programmer, I can come in with ladder logic, structured tags, but now I can also come in with C Sharp, Python, what have you, which ultimately also leads more opportunities, but also more custom solutions, if that makes sense. So to be honest with you, I'm not sure if we're headed more in a very standardized environment or we're opening ourselves up like through our own, I want to say, how to say need to have more open systems into an area where, like I said, there's going to be so much custom, maybe like code, because we are making it possible. And I think that every vendor is pretty much recognizing that end users are interested. So I'm curious, maybe like your perspective on that, because I think complexity certainly drives all of these custom systems to be built. Right. No, but I get your point because we're talking, I talked about earlier, it's needs-based, right? And everyone is unique in what their needs are. Therefore, it makes sense that your solution is going to be a custom solution. But I think when we talk about standardization, it's about what are those building blocks of that solution? If you can have modules or a modular approach to how you build these solutions and that modular approach those individual modules if you will are based on standard technologies whether that be protocols whether that be the way you handle data the way you handle security the way you handle alarming those types of things then yeah you might have solutions that look very different in terms of what you see outwardly but the way it's built on standard components and that's what simplifies that complexity and allows us to gain efficiencies i really like that i I think I've not, I guess, thought of it that way because I'm a lot more like on the programming side, but I think that makes a lot of sense. Dave, what are your thoughts? I would say Vlad and I have never seen a standardized thing, Garrett, that we just don't want to turn into the craziest Rube Goldberg machine that anyone has ever seen. But I do want to dig more onto that. So I love the concept of complexity into modules, and then we standardize those modules and we can mix and match. And while I'd love to ask if there is a customer example that you could potentially share, I don't know how many customers are quite to that point. So is there perhaps like a Siemens vision of what that would look like, either in a Siemens facility or somewhere else that you guys have drawn up that would be a good example? Yeah, yeah, I think actually there are some customers out there that that are approaching this largely. I think you look at different verticals, you look at different types of customers, many times it's the larger end users that, that start down this path are usually the innovators. And then you start to see other people follow suit. In terms of Siemens, what our approach is, is to really provide open standards with guardrails, right? There, when you say open, it can mean a lot of things. And it's not the Wild West. It's not a free-for-all. There's open standards, but there's certainly guardrails. The idea is to provide flexibility to, to the market. And that market's changing. Our audience is changing. And again, going back to what we saw 20 years ago, there were controls engineers everywhere. People were learning PLCs. People knew ladder logic. People... Wanted to do that, it was interesting. The fact of the matter is, that's not so much the case anymore. We're getting people with much more of a, a computer science focus, IT level focus, talking about higher level languages, like you mentioned earlier, JavaScript and Python and things like that. 
So I think what you're going to see from leaders like Siemens going forward is how do we meet that market? So maybe today there's one way to develop a program for a PLC. Maybe in the future, there's several ways to appeal to those different types of users. Because I think as we see things start to converge, and you talk about the buzzword of ITOT convergence, and you start to see these things come together, how do we meet that market? And that's what Siemens' goal is. It's really open system with guardrails, really a larger ecosystem to really provide the market what they need to put those standard modular blocks together, put whatever solutions they need to be doing this together. Let me, if I may ask a question on the governing body for standardization, I think that there's multiple, I want to say, stakeholders in this process. And we see, I want to say, a greater emergence, at least of bodies that try and standardize. And I think it, it was also industry specific, right? So the food and bev has ML standards for, let's like PLC codes. There's going to be ISA standards. And so I'm curious, like what your perspective is on who should be almost driving this? Is it maybe everybody? Is it, you know, certain groups more than others? Is it the end users? Is it integrator? Is it OEMs? Is it, like I said, these like independent bodies, maybe the government needs to step in to help in on some of this. So I'm curious who ultimately is maybe the owner of setting these standards and ultimately trying to proliferate them, if I will, to, to ultimately the end users who would benefit from them. Yeah. That's yeah, a really good question. And it's a big question, but because I'm not sure you're going to get a standard answer from anyone from, from my perspective, though, I really think it's the overall ecosystem and how does that come together? Many times when you look, say you take a vertical industry, say it's, say it's something in logistics. So PacML might come into play as an example. Many times when you get the very large end users, these are the guys with the deep pockets, right? These are the guys with the funding and the personnel and the resources to really invest. They're typically the trendsetters. So they will start down that path because they have the ability to do it. Manufacturers, which are also leading in those discussions with those large end users. Then you have the system integrators. They, they come in and part of that ecosystem that has to execute on, all right, this all sounds great. How do we bring it together? What's that? What's the reality of the situation? And then it was the users do it. Then you start to see OEMs start to follow suit and, and they jump in and then it builds a coalition. And then sometimes it gets so big, you got to have maybe the government or these governing bodies that step in to really put some governance and some wrappers around these standards. So I think it can be somewhat organic in the way that it develops, but that's how I see the training, the process taking place. And it's an interesting perspective, right? Because I think, and this is less, less of a question, but more of a comment. I think it's a complex problem, right? Because from an end user standpoint, if you are developing a standard that benefits you internally, it then becomes a question like, why would you share that externally? And the argument could be made that if we all rise, you also rise, but it's also, I want to say, not the right incentive. So I would see how the OEMs and maybe these third-party governing bodies would be more and less, in a less biased way, be positioned to create these standards. But again, I don't think, as you said, there's a right or wrong necessarily. Answer. Yeah. It and I really think, so it's really a, the, the market will show the direction of where we need to go. But I think it's also, you got to look at some of the other trends that we're seeing. You're right. Why would a company share that if it's a competitive advantage? The thing is, though, I think many times what we're starting to face is, especially as in specific industries, is we talk about some of the trends that we're seeing. And one of those, one of those trends that we're seeing increased automation, increasing need to automate. We don't have the people, right? So there's a, the Har there's an article in the Harvard Business Review that recently came out. They said there's going to be 3.4 billion manufacturing jobs, big number, 
available over the next 10 years, over the next decade here in the US. But 2 million of those are gonna go unfilled. So we don't have the people, we don't have the expertise unless some things change today. At the same time that's happening, you have, I'll throw some more numbers at you. We call it standardization. There was, I never followed a wholesale blog, but there was an article that they put out there that said 50%, there's 50% reduction on manufacturer's cost by standardization of products, parts, and processes as possible. So you have that. And you also have, so you, so you have all these pressures on the industry, on these companies, to the point that you're starting to see managers say, hey, I'm willing to share some of this information outside of my company because it helps my overall ecosystem, it helps my suppliers get aligned with what we're doing, helps my OEMs get aligned with what we're doing, helps my system integrators rationalize and justify the investment they have to make to get in line with this. In fact, another number, the Boston Consulting Group had a survey that they did that 72% of managers say they're considering data sharing to improve their operations. That's because as we grow as quickly as we're growing, we're seeing more and more challenges solved by automation. That's great, but we have fewer and fewer people to meet that demand. So how do we get better as, as an industry? And that's where you start sharing that information, which maybe 20 years ago, that was a competitive advantage, but now you see it a bigger picture, it can help you grow. I would definitely hope that more manufacturers would share that same vision. I think it's still, they, they need some nudging, so to speak, in order to, to share a little bit better, in my opinion. Dave, do you want to bring in? There's a few good comments in chat that we've gotten. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and bring in Johnny's comment here, talking about one of his main issues with standardization is the legacy we've always done it this way mentality. And Dan has commented about how that is like the worst reason for not wanting to, to adapt that he hears all the time. I, I will make the funny story a year or a couple of years ago, I, I worked with an organization and we tried to bring in version control or revision control of just their documentation. And the reason why we couldn't do it was quite literally, and their words were, we change things so often, I don't know why we would start with revision or version control. And uh, that's just one of your, you throw your hands up in the air and you walk away because you're not going to win that one. And there's a reason why I'm not continuing to uh, to help that group. And then Dan has got a comment here talking about how he sees lots of ladder programmers calling structure text garbage and that they both have very specific and ideal use cases. And those from a higher level of scripting and IT understand structure text much better. I think that's a really great comment, Dan. So a lot of times when we have that conversation or that debate, it is very much depending upon where the program or where the person has come in, they might be more comfortable with that, or an organization might have standards on it, or it might be easier to write a specific series of programs or commands in one language versus another, despite the fact that there are some ladder logic wizards out there that can write a literal entire like MES all based on ladder and no one knows how they do it. And I personally just don't want to know how they do it because I imagine that they spend just way too much time sitting there typing on the keyboard. But I want to talk a bit about that innovation, Garrett. Last month, we were talking to a bunch of systems integrators and innovators, right? And the reoccurring theme of who should be driving the technologies came up, right? And so I want to talk about the standardization. So who should be the groups or what percentage should each group be driving the adoption of this standardization? Should it be the OEMs like Siemens? Should it be the systems integrators trying to get their end users to standardize? Should it be the end users realizing that they can probably save a bunch of money if they standardize on a smaller series of parts? From your perspective, where does that responsibility lie or where will that responsibility lie in the future? I think today, and certainly it'll become even more important as we go into the future, 
that responsibility is with all of the above. There's all there's a role to be played for everyone. This isn't something where, hey, this person needs to do this for this to work. This is something we got to come together as an ecosystem and, and, and make it work. There's a role for everyone. Again, many times it starts at, at the end user level, especially the large end users, because that's where the, the deeper pockets are at. That leads to demand for OEMs to really get on board if they're, they're going to be able to sell their machines. And that, that leads to system integrators saying, hey, this is what's happening in the market. we got to jump in. And I think to make sure it's done as, as efficiently and as intelligently as possible, we all got to do our part and contribute. I think it's just, just like I said earlier, my, my role is I.O. But it doesn't mean I'm going in with a block of I.O. and talking to a customer about all the features, functions, and benefits of that little block of I.O. We're trying to we're trying to solve problems. So I think that's where maybe you're not the guy with the deep pockets with the initial need. As a systems integrator, you can come in. You have some experience. You have some some knowledge. It's certainly valuable. You should be open and contribute with that. OEMs should do the same thing. So I really think it's everyone coming together as an overall industry that's responsible for it. Then you did get into the point where you need some governance, right? And that's where you get into some of these outside groups and the governance and that. that that's really how I see it. And I think when we look at standardization, some of the comments that came up, it's important to understand, we say standardization, but that's a really big term, right? It's a big word. What exactly does standardization mean? And we can call it standardized on ladder logic or standardized on this or standardized on that. And someone made the comment about, we've always done it this way, so we're not going to change. That is not the right approach for standardization. When you think standardization, it's important to, first of all, be in the mindset. And this might be a cultural change for some. And this is something that's, we're in a transitional phase right now where I always say, start small and think big. So in other words, step number one, what's your plan? What's your big picture, holistic plan? Where are you going to go? Step two, focus on the low-hanging fruit. What are the quickest and easiest things that you can do in the shortest amount of time that's going to get you the greatest amount of return? That's what you should focus on first, because the whole standardization thing is a journey, right? It should be phased in. It should be an iterative approach. Once you get those first few focus areas out of the way, then you scale, then you extend, you scale up from there. And then the last step is, and this goes to the comment, is continuous improvement. You should always be striving to get better. Therefore, you should never get a comment, this is the way we've always done it. Therefore, this is the way we're going to do it. And there's good reasons to reevaluate it. That self-reflection, that, that continuous improvement should always be in place because the world changes. We're seeing, we talk about how quickly the world's changing now. If you have a standard that's been in place for 20 years, you better consider changing it because otherwise you're gonna be left behind and that you're either gonna be purchased or you're gonna go out of business. I like that. I definitely resonate with, with especially that last comment. Gentlemen, if I wanna, I guess I'd like to take a step back a little bit because I think this is our first episode on standardization and I think maybe we need to set the stage a little bit better. So I think that in manufacturing, there's a lot of different standardizations that could happen even on the, let's say, employee side, on the operator side, on the Lean Six Sigma side. So I think that for the context of the conversation we're having, it's mostly on the automation side. So when it comes to maybe hardware, when it comes to software, when it comes to at least protocols, when it comes to deploying automation in manufacturing in general. Garrett, could you give us maybe a little bit of a synopsis what standardization looks like, let's say, in your conversations and what kind of discussions you're having with different stakeholders? Yeah, so I think when you look at standardization and automation, the way we look at it is first look at it at a plant or even an enterprise, right? When you look at integration within that plant or integration within that plant or within that enterprise, 
you have both horizontal integration and vertical integration. So think of horizontal integration is when you're on that factory floor, right? You have machines and you have lines and you want to be able to standardize so you have the same types of for that machine engineering. You want to standardize on machine engineering so you get consistency and standards across the horizontal slice, which is on the factory floor. Then beyond that, you have the vertical integration. So that's when you're getting up more to players that also evolve IT and then eventually solely up to IT when you get up to that ERP system and things like that. So then you got to think about communication. How do you communicate? How do you communicate in a way that's not disruptive to the OT side, but still giving the IT side everything that they need? And you're getting all that information up at the vertical level. So you think of it from a horizontal perspective and a vertical perspective. You think about it in terms of machine engineering, line engineering, safety is a big one. You think about it in terms of diagnostics, so how you handle your errors and alarming, what that concept looks like, your operator concepts. So what does visualization look like? What do the operator, what do they need to operate? But the goal is, again, we have workforce challenges, right? One advantage of standardization is if all of your lines and all your machines have a standard way to operate them, then you can have cross-training and cross-functions for each of those operators, therefore gaining efficiency in the way you operate your business. But that's really it. So it's machine engineering, it's, it's line integration, it's safety, it's diagnostics with error, errors, error alarm, and alarm handling, and it's that operator concept. Awesome. Dave, what are your thoughts? I love that. Garrett, you've talked in, you've talked earlier in the conversation about how many kind of larger companies with larger budgets are leading the way. In your current role, do you get to work with a lot of these innovation centers helping kind of shape what standardization is going to look like for them and for most of the rest of the industry? Yeah, yeah, I certainly get involved in those conversations. For me right now, while I'm the IO guy, it's all about solutions, right? And, and so I'll back up a little bit to my previous role when I said the systems integrator, because I even got a more holistic view even when I was there. And I tell you what, guys, it's crazy. But sometimes when you think of companies, you think these big name companies, they got their stuff together. You can go in there and they have these standards. You know what? You go in there, they don't got their stuff together. And then you go into other companies and, and they really do. They're at the forefront. It's best practice stuff. I've seen all of it. And what we would do, and we, this is something we can do, it seems, is really go in and it starts with that vision. Again, step one. What's the objective? What's, what's the plan? Where do you want to go? And then partnering and identifying ways to get there. So you get things like design guides and technology guides, and, and you really start defining what that looks like. We did that a lot. I see that. I saw that a lot. We did a lot at Siemens. I've seen. I saw it a lot as a systems integrator. One reason why I started seeing a lot of it is how much attrition have you guys seen with your customers in the automation space over the years? There's been a lot of attrition, a lot of turnover, right? And many times, all that knowledge is going right out the door. So how do you keep it? You've got to standardize. You got to have standardization. You got to have a standard way of doing things. Otherwise, you might have that one guy that did things a certain way with that certain programming language. And he leaves or he retires and you don't, there's nothing you can do except start over. That's incredibly inefficient. And you're looking at that, that, that introduction of that incredible level of inefficiency at a time when we don't have the people to do the work. So standardization is very important. We're definitely seeing it at Siemens. And Siemens were taking, again, a partnering approach, a consultative approach where our customers know what they do. They know what they do very well. They know it better than us. But we know automation. We know and we bring perspective from all different aspects and, and verticals of what we see in industry and bring that to bear. So again, when we talk about 
who contributes to the value that comes into the standardization discussion? It's an ecosystem. There's a role for the manufacturer, a role for systems integrators, there's a role for the OEM, there's a role for the end user. And many times these conversations, they really are, especially with the leaders in this in this in these efforts, that are really including all of those stakeholders. Garrett, I want to ask, I want to say like a, a difficult question because I think that it's important to recognize that standardization, as you said, sometimes is a journey, right? So there's definitely, I want to see a lot of wins that you can get as you progress through that. But what are maybe in your conversation, some of the quicker wins that let's say a manufacturer could gain through standardizing, right? It's not going to be, let's say a person that retires in 10 years, because I think sometimes maybe that first hurdle, right, to standardize takes a lot of effort and time and ultimately investment. And so until you see those first results, it becomes difficult to continue to invest. So in your conversations, what do you try and explain to them? What are some of the quicker wins that they could realize? Yeah, that, that sets me up pretty well to talk about my focus today, which is IO. So okay. uh, certainly IO, I can tell you, when we look at standardization with IO, there's more, there, there's more foreign investment coming to the U.S. now than ever before. In fact, if you look at it globally, the U.S. is number one foreign investment. China is a distant number two. With that investment, we're seeing more greenfield facility growth than we've ever seen, than we've seen in years coming to the U.S. So we have greenfield facilities coming in. We also have brownfield facilities coming in. So what that means is, for me, many times I say low-hanging fruit is I.O. We're trying to get more and more data. How do we get it in? If you're an OEM, your business maybe is in the U.S. where maybe you see more of one type of automation system, but your customers also now very much in Europe, or maybe you see another type. So you have different ways to communicate. Maybe you have a field bus. In one case, it might be Modbus TCP. In another case, it might be Ethernet IP. But everything you have designed is Profinet because you've been using Siemens. What if we start with the I.O.? We standardize on the I.O. And the I.O. can communicate all of them. There's nothing you have to change. One piece of hardware, the same I.O. communicates all those field buses. You design it once, you're done. Your drawings are done once, you're done. And, and you just change the ink software, the protocol that you're communicating. So... Again, I.O., if you look at a control system, many times I.O. is one of the largest portions of that control system, if not the largest, in terms of investment and product. So if you can standardize there, that's a big deal. So that's the area where I start typically. Now, I might be biased towards I.O., but the point is there's always that point where there is that low-hanging fruit, where you really can start on something. And it, can, it can be an easier approach, and you can see quick returns. Awesome. Unintentional setup, but I like it. I Again, like I've certainly worked on many control systems in which IO either it needs to be replaced, changed, and ultimately, as you said, also augmented at this stage to get data into higher level systems. So definitely. Yeah, and you're seeing that, you know, higher level systems. So IT communication. So you look at field bus for the OT side, but for IT side, you're starting to see the IT protocols come into play, even at the IO level. So you look at protocols like OPC UA, MQT, et cetera. So how do you communicate those? That's something that we're doing at Siemens. Again, trying to meet the market where the market's going. Now, skate beyond the puck so we can receive the pass, right? So in that way, if we have an I.O. solution that you can standardize on, and you can have the field bus that you need. You can also provide IT the data that they need because you have that communication capability. And also you have a breadth of product that whether you have I.O. that's in a cabinet or on a machine, you have all of the above. That's a big deal. And that saves money in a variety of ways in terms of spare parts, challenge workforce in terms of very streamlined. They only need to know one platform. I could go on and on. Absolutely. Dave, what are your thoughts? You also had some 
interesting comments. In the I, I did. I had some interesting comments. I do want to go highlight chat. So Lewis says standard and not standardized automation doesn't mean vendor lock scenarios. It's actually the opposite. And I think that this is a really good point. Standardizing interfaces and connecting data models address challenges from customization, digitalization, workforce, and even climate change. It just depends upon the challenge and what is important. The smart start small and then scale. And then Arun was agreeing, saying that the nuanced definition of standardization, it is those standardizing interfaces, but not necessarily standardizing on one vendor or platform. One could almost say that it's important not to standardize on one vendor or platform, because then you get to what Daniel was talking about, a very siloed, very locked in of everything in, in the 90s. So I want to go ahead and dig into this, but first we've got some people to thank. So we want to thank Siemens for sponsoring standardization in automation, sustainability, product customization, digitalization, new technologies, and competitors. Manufacturing continues to grow more complex. Standardization is our answer to these challenges. The more standardized technologies, systems, processes, and interfaces become, the faster and more cost-effectively you can drive your automation and digitalization forward. How can you boost your flexibility and competitiveness? What probably happens when you change from the machine supplier and then you have to integrate automation systems from different vendors? Without standardization, you need more employees with different skills, lose flexibility and time on the integration process, and have to expect longer downtimes. With standardization, you can avoid these problems and gain both flexibility and competitive advantages. Want to learn more? Check out Siemens.com, a whole bunch of other things, slash standardization. We will go ahead and drop that link in all of the chats below. And if you guys are listening on podcast form, you guys can go ahead and check the show notes as well. But no, I think that's really important. And I do want to thank Lewis and Arun for making that. I feel like you guys set up the ad read absolutely fantastically. So thank you guys for going ahead and setting that up. And Garrett, I know that we talked a couple about a couple of quick wins. I know that we had talked about ways to save money on the IO. I want to have a bit broader conversation around standardization and what you're seeing. Maybe you can share a, an experience. I've got an experience or, or a couple of experiences that I can go ahead and share talking about standardizing, maybe not necessarily on one vendor or hardware, but the business benefits that organizations see. Yeah, certainly. And I think that's an important point. It's not necessarily one vendor or hardware. And I know sometimes it's perceived as Siemens as a product vendor. That's what I, that's what I talked about earlier. We manufacture, I think what you're going to see, you're certainly going to see from Siemens. It is more of an open approach to where there's a variety of ways of meeting that standardization goal. And it seems we're way more than a product company. You, know, you got to look at the full package, what level of service, support, expertise, you know, all these things are valuable. And what does that mean? In terms of where we're seeing some early wins with standardization and really seeing some early returns, I'll go back to, I was working with a food and beverage company and, and they have, they're doing very well and, and they're expanding around the country and around the world. They have new plants that they're bringing into their overall enterprise. And they've been down this, they've gone down the standardization path and they started this quite a few years ago. And so they're more sophisticated and further along than a lot of other people in the industry may be. They, they've had a number of challenges. They went through COVID like everyone else. They lost a lot of people. What saved them is they had those standards in place. So they were able to bring new people on board and, and onboard them quicker than what any of their competitors could do. So that's a competitive advantage. Number two, when they need to, to scale and expand, they have these standards in place so they can go into the new facilities that they procure and they have a recipe, if you will, 
for how to bring that up to speed. And they know how to prioritize it in order to realize a greater return on that investment sooner rather than later. Sometimes if you don't have that standard in place, and you have a new facility or you look to scale, whether that scale is a new machine, a new line, a new plant, it can take quite a while to see the return on that investment because you're starting everything from scratch. Standardization, you see it early on. That's what we saw with this food and beverage company is they're looking at bringing these new plants online and start their standardization approach right away. And they're going to see returns on that investment in a positive way year one. Interesting. Can I, if I can follow up maybe with one question on, on that integration project and standardization, who was, who's, I think the, in general, the driving force behind that? Is that like a corporate engineering role? Do they bring in maybe an external consultant who can audit and help them architect the solution? What does that maybe dynamic look like to maybe focus that we need to create certain standards in order to grow in a scalable fashion? Largely what it looks like is these days, typically there's decisions that are made by consensus, right? There's typically not a single decision maker. And that, that applies in terms of individuals. It also applies in terms of organizations to where many times they'll come in and maybe they'll have a consultant come in and they'll do a strategic analysis of their business and say, you know what, if you implement an MBS system in your enterprise, that you can realize 5% that goes to your bottom line in terms of profitability once that's implemented. It starts with maybe end users say, hey, we need to do something here. How do we grow our business? We don't know what that looks like. So let's bring in this consultant. Maybe the consultant is someone like a manufacturer like Siemens. Maybe it's an engineering firm. It could be a variety of different types of entities. Bring them in, do that analysis, and really say maybe there's several outputs that come out of that analysis. In this specific case I'm talking about for MBS, that's a real example. And they recognize, hey, MBS is something that can help us in a number of ways. So we're going to focus on that right away. That MBS example actually led to lots of, they had to modernize their facility in order to get the data they needed to feed that MBS system. So it led to all kinds of new projects and new automation investments that they had that they had to make. Um, but, but it started there. That's where they started. They started with MBS. And then they said, well, we also need to do this and this. And they prioritized those items. And the plan just grew from there. And again, that goes back to that continuous improvement stuff. You're always striving to get better, always striving to do more. So you're always building. So got a little bit off track a little bit with my explanation there, but I think you guys know what I'm getting at with that. Yeah, and it's an interesting, again, it's an interesting, I think, challenge that many end users face, right? Because I think they're trying to figure out, can they do this, I want to say, quote unquote, transformation internally, or they need to bring in an outside perspective that understands what is possible and ultimately doesn't have that, those like blinders that say, we've always done it this way. And so it needs to be someone with an ITOT probably perspective that understands these decisions, like on the business side as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. Because that, certainly, you made a good point, but ITOT, 20 years ago, we were primarily working with OT people. Now, I can tell you, it, we, we're, when we're approaching a large investment or initiative, IT is almost always involved. And in some cases today, you're even seeing IT be at the forefront or even the lead of some of these projects that have a significant OT component. Now, there's a lot of ways to do that, a lot of ways to do it right, a lot of ways to do it wrong, but you're seeing it. And I think that the, the, my point is you're seeing IT come into this equation more and more, becoming more and more prominent. And it's incumbent upon manufacturers like Siemens, OEMs, systems integrators to figure out how do we speak that language together? How do we come to a, a common language? I don't think it's ever going to get to a point where IT people are doing all the OT functions or OT people are doing IT functions. I don't think that's the right approach. I don't think that's what we're going to see. But you are going to see, or right now it looks pretty cloudy sometimes, pretty muddy. Then you're going to start to see that clear up a little bit 
And you're going to see more of a teaming approach and really more of a defined definition of roles and responsibilities for new large investments and projects. Dave, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that all of those are really good. Let me go ahead and share kind of an example similar to what Garrett was saying about standardization. I think we've got some really good comments about standardization of interfaces. I've seen it kind of time and time again. Many organizations uh, have a bunch of different machines from two or three different vendors from half a dozen different, uh, different versions of those. And so it takes weeks or months to go ahead and onboard someone to any particular machine. And so if a person down the line, especially at this point, quits or leaves, decides they don't want to come into work or kind of have any of those other issues, then you very potentially have a machine down opportunity. When I was in integration, I went and looked at a job. They, it was at an injection molding facility. And they had two different main manufacturers, and they each had three or four different versions of the machine, right? And so all of the interfaces looked really ugly. But beyond them all looking really ugly, they were all just different, right? Like different buttons were in different places, which doesn't make it easy to onboard anyone, much less onboard anyone from seven or eight or seven or 10 different versions and sets of screens as you go through that. What initially became a conversation of, hey, let's go collect some data turned into the, hey, there is a huge return on investment of just going and standardizing the HMI interfaces across all of the machines. And it doesn't matter what software platform that is at, as long as you go through the process of standardizing what those opportunities look like, you can easily go ahead and onboard people to, to one machine. And then once you've onboarded them from one machine, you've onboarded them to, to 10 or 12 different machines. So I think that, I guess my hope, similar to Garrett's kind of global food and beverage manufacturer, is that we will see more groups understand the value of that, especially as it becomes more and more difficult to go find and hire and train and retain people on the shop floor in and of itself. The biggest opportunities, the biggest opportunities, the biggest opportunities lie there on the plant floor. And Daniel, I feel like I have certainly in spirit been to your plant, but also it makes me worried a little bit. Maybe I should just stay as far away from your plant as, as possible. But no, Garrett, so I think that this has been a super interesting conversation about this so far. I don't know if you have any other thoughts. We've gotten a little bit deep on a couple of parts of standardization, but as we've discussed at the beginning, there are so many different things of standardization that we could talk about. So are there any things that we want to get into that we should have as part of this conversation in standardization? Any other topics? Yeah, Dave, the only thing I would re-emphasize that again, standardization is a journey. Standardization is going to be different things to different people. The first step is to take a step back, reflect, and decide holistically what it means for you and what your goals are. And then don't let it be overwhelming. I don't think standardization is not this magical thing that's just come up, right? People have known for years and years and years that sometimes they need to standardize, or maybe they need to change their standards or readdress their standards, right? And they haven't done it. Sometimes I feel like they haven't done it because it can be overwhelming. Where do you start? And I think that's just that don't get overwhelmed. Take an take a iterative approach, get that overall holistic view first, and then pick things off one piece at a time. And I think especially as we're seeing, again, we're seeing all this growth coming into the U.S., right? Take advantage of your ecosystem. Leverage your system integration partners, your OEM partners. You, you, you talk to your end users. Work with your manufacturers that see things from a variety of perspectives. That diversity of perspective can really many times help provide the most optimized solution. So communicate is the main message here. 
Absolutely. What are your thoughts, Clyde? Are there anything else that we should make sure that, that we hit on during this first conversation? Garrett, I'd be curious, maybe there's a lot of new technologies. Like we discussed, there's, I want to say like higher level keywords that you can use to describe them. But I think there's very tangible, I want to say technologies that are coming into the manufacturing floor. Are you maybe, do you have any comments about what some of them are going to do towards standardization? Are there going to be more impactful ones than the other? I think we're seeing, so for a while, I think we saw a lot of cloud adoption. I think now we've realized to the data point you made earlier, there's a need to have those concentrators and processors and IPCs a little bit closer to the edge. So that's what I'm at least like personally seeing. So there's obviously a need to collect that data, but also to process the data and ultimately make decisions with that data. So I think that provides an interesting opportunity to standardize that data flow. But I'm curious if you have like perspectives of, again, like different tools and different maybe technologies that are coming out that will help with standardizing. Yeah, there's a number of things I comment on here. One thing I'll comment on is one of the things we're seeing, especially from IO level, again, we go back to my bias there, is you see open standards like IO link technology that's been around for years, right? Probably a dozen years or so, but it's really starting to get traction these days. The reason why it's getting traction is because of the standardization message. People are looking at ways to do things easier, do things in a more standardized way, so you're seeing that. So that's not a new technology, but it's one that's been around for a while. It's really starting to get traction these days. The big one that everyone talks about these days because it's so mainstream is artificial intelligence and machine learning. And while it's certainly the mainstream now, so everyone talks about it, there's a lot of fears out there, just a lot of things going on. The fact of the matter is we've been doing machine learning for quite some time and even artificial intelligence for quite some time. Now, it's advancing at a pace now that we've never seen before. But again, all the more reason to standardize because if you have an artificial intelligence making decisions for a process or for a facility, you want to make sure it's getting the best information possible, right? Therefore, you got to standardize on how you collect that data, package that data, and deliver that data. So I think we're going to see a lot more artificial intelligence coming into play for a variety of reasons, a variety of use cases across the industry, both in terms of from the development side, engineering side, business side, operation side, all facets of business. And I think standardization is a critical step as we see this, because again, we want to make better decisions. And we think the way to make better decisions is by deploying artificial intelligence. We better make sure we start with a good data set. You do that with standardization. Awesome. Definitely. I really like the perspective. We talked a little bit about the size of the companies that can pioneer standardization. I wanted to get also your perspective on the industry, right? So if I'm, let's say, an engineer in food and beverage, I would not consider food and beverage to always be the pioneer, but maybe I would be looking at, let's say, automotive. I would be looking at pharmaceuticals. Do you have a perspective of which industries are maybe pioneering most standardization in their facility? So I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I think that's a good question. I think there's probably multiple answers to this, but I would say it's those industries where you're seeing the, the strong customer demand and also a lot of changes. So automotive is one, right? Because we look at the EV, the electric vehicles, the initiative there. There's a lot of things that are happening on that forefront. That business is changing. So that business is changing. The way they manufacture the products is also changing. And that's leading to innovation and, and changes in approach in the industry. So automotive is certainly one with EV. You also got to look at what we've seen with the supply chain shortage with semiconductor and the reshoring of semiconductor production here in the U.S. and all the new semiconductor greenfield facilities and expansions that are coming in. Because of all this expansion, again, this is where you're getting a lot of the diversity of thought and a lot of the innovation coming into play. So that's another industry that I would see. I would say is on the leading edge. 
and really I could go down the list, but it's really those industries where you're seeing the most activity, where you're seeing the most money, follow the dollar. Where the money's going, that's where you're seeing innovation and investment. And maybe it's also that that entire like greenfield component, right? Because I think it allows you a bit more of a mindset to let's you know let's take a pause, let's not just reapply what we've been doing for a long time. Let's really rethink the architecture and standardize in a way that, as I said, will allow us to copy paste that design or just allow people to commit a lot more easier. So maybe that that too is an interesting topic on that side. Yeah. It's again, it's all needs based. Another industry we could reference would be defense industry, right? Being a mode for doing things a certain way for quite a few years now. And now geopolitical reasons are really changing things in the world. And all of a sudden there's a lot more demand. So we're seeing greenfield facilities being built for defense industry today too. So we're seeing that more. And because they see such a demand and need to increase and ramp up and scale production, you're really seeing a lot of innovation in that, in that space. So again, it really comes back to where are the needs at? from a market perspective, therefore, where is the money being applied? And that's where you see a lot of innovation. Interesting. Dave, thoughts, comments? I think it's really interesting. And I feel like those comments have very much set us up to one of my favorite parts of the show, Garrett, where we put you on the hot seat and we ask you to predict the future. I think you gave us a bunch of really good, good ideas, good concepts throughout all of this, including the follow the money, including the artificial intelligence. What do you predict that the future of the standardization and automation is going to look like in the next two to five years? Yeah, I'm not sure how good my crystal ball is, but I'll give it a shot. I, I think what we're going to continue to see, I do think standardization is a trend that you're going to, while people are starting to talk about it more now, I think you're going to see it grow. And I think it's growing out of necessity because we're seeing, we've talked about big data for years. Now we got the processing power and we have the methods to get the data in place. How do we use it intelligently? That's where you're going to start seeing more artificial intelligence being deployed. There's a variety of use cases there for predictive control, predictive maintenance, simulation, et cetera. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Then you're going to see a lot more modularization. We call, we use the term plug and produce at Siemens, but that's where you're going to see, as we look at this innovation and we look at automation and developing and expanding ground fields and green fields, how do you do it intelligently? You don't want to, you don't want to reinvent the wheel every time. So I think you're going to see a lot more standardization in terms of libraries, Technology really leading to these standard modules, these modules that can be applied in a variety of ways and essentially plug and produce. And I think the need that you see for that, what's really going to be driving that as we have all this data coming in, we're getting the data, we leverage artificial intelligence and the processing power that we have there now to really make those decisions. And you see more efficient plants. Some people will say sometimes I went to get a haircut a few weeks ago and the, the barber asked me, so what do you do for a living? I always struggle to answer that question because I try to explain it. No one knows what the heck. So I just basically tell them, yeah, I'm one of those guys with you know, doing factory automation. And, uh, and they have a plant, they automate the plant, we do the automation. And they understood that, but they took me back and they said, so people are losing their jobs, automation to, to all these things. And that's something that, that I talked to them about it, but that's something that we see. And that's something that, that a lot of people talk about. But I don't think that's true. I think maybe... Our jobs change, but there's still going to be jobs. We're just going to have to make adjustments and there's going to be changes in what we do. So I think you're going to see a lot of changes in the workforce in terms of how it's applied and how it's leveraged in the industry. I think those of us in the automation industry, we need to put people's minds at ease the best that we can and know we're not out there replacing jobs. Sure, there will be some jobs lost and some jobs will change, but there's lots of new opportunities being created as well. Absolutely. Now, I like that. I feel like that's a very elegant way to, to explain 
what you do. I've given up on explaining what I do to most people, Gareth. But I appreciate that you're still out there fighting the good fights so that hopefully one day people will know what automation actually is. Now, this has been fantastic. So, Gareth, we love to ask people for a book recommendation. So I know that you've got something to talk to us about today. Yeah, there's a book that I read a few years ago. It's called Great by Choice by Jim Collins and Morton Hansen. And really what this book applies to, it applies to just organizations as well as individuals, right? The choices that we make in our everyday life to be great. One of the topics that's covered in this book is a concept called the 20-mile march. And, and really what it's about is discipline. And it really talks about discipline and pacing growth. So whether that growth is personal growth or that growth is organizational business growth, I think it's important to think about set a smart goal for how much you want to grow in a specific period of time. And the point is, you have aspirations to grow and set up a goal to grow too fast, too quickly, many times you wear yourself out. That applies to individual, it also applies to an organization. Sometimes you can, your goals are too low and you go too slowly. I think it's important to set the right goal and try to hit that consistently year after year. What it does, sometimes it makes us uncomfortable because sometimes you grow in too slowly and you really have to buckle down and do some new things to hit that growth goal. Other times, maybe you're going really fast, right? Or you're hitting, you're about to hit your goal really fast. You know, I could do more. But sometimes by doing that, you wear yourself out or you wear your organization out. And it's important to know when to pull the reins back a little bit and just have good, consistent, solid growth or development. That's what this concept that is covered in this book, Great by Choice, is all about, the 20 Mile March. And I encourage you guys to check it out and see what you think about it. Interesting. I think it's an interesting concept. I've always, I have not read that Jim Collins book, but I've appreciated the other Jim Collins books that, that I, that I've read in the past. Uh, so thank you for, uh, thank you for that, Garrett. Um, next question is, we'd love some career advice, right? So, so typically kind of, we, we like to talk to folks early to, to mid-career. I know you gave us some really interesting kind of nuggets and tidbits throughout all the way, but if someone is early mid-career and they say, hey, Garrett, What's the best piece of career advice do you have? What do you, what would you give them? That's a good question. I would say be open-minded. Sometimes we go in, we have preconceptions about who we are, what we want to do, and what certain things are. I would say one of the most important things, especially if you're early career, even mid-career, even more senior in your career, be open-minded. Listen to opportunities, understand different opportunities that are out there. And then, again, go back to self-reflection. Reflect on what's really important to you, where your passion is at, and what's your personal path to get there. I see, quite frankly, where people get on a path and they think, gosh, no matter what, they got to stay on that path. It's not true. It's important to, to be open-minded and always take an opportunity to take a step back, zoom out, and get new perspective, and then adjust. So that would be my, my, my high-level guidance. And I love that. And Garrett, as I said, it might be that I've just come back from vacation that I didn't go look at the computer for a week, but I absolutely love the, the comment on reflection. I think it's exceptionally important, absolutely underrated in regards to advice. And Jesse had a really good comment she about jobs being replaced by automation and how that they're the dangerous and dull or dirty for humans to, to perform. And they think that it's a really good perspective as we help navigate the shift. And I think that's also, I would agree with all of those comments. Garrett, last question we have for you today is who should reach out? Who do you want to connect with? I imagine that Siemens is always hiring above your opportunity to, to ask our listeners anything you want as a thank you for coming and chatting with us. Yeah, no, first of all, I do want to say, I appreciate everyone's time. I certainly appreciate that you guys listening to me for the last hour. In terms of contact, feel free to reach out to me directly. 
I'm on LinkedIn, so that's probably the best way to, to reach me, and and I can help you, especially anything related to Siemens. I've been around Siemens for a very long time, so I can help you navigate things with Siemens. Also, I've been around the industry a long time, so I can help you navigate things there, too. So don't hesitate to reach out. LinkedIn is a great place to start, and then I can share my information beyond that. Absolutely, Garrett. Thank you so much, and everyone, thank you for coming and hanging out. We had a couple of dozen people live in the LinkedIn chat for, for most of the conversation, and it was very busy. So thank you, everyone, for coming and hanging out today. If you guys have made it all the way through, please make sure that you've connected with Garrett and myself and Vlad. Please make sure that you've been following the Manufacturing Hub uh, podcast. And if you guys have made it this far on podcast form, thank you guys for that. Please hit the follow. Please go rate us five stars in all the places that you can go rate us five stars. I have learned that if we ask people to follow along, Garrett, people like and follow along. So that makes it better. Again, thank you to Siemens for sponsoring this. Come check us out all Wednesday, every Wednesday this month, talking about standardization in automation until next time we'll see everyone soon bye-bye thank you so much thank you garrett